seem detrimental. They just don't seem detrimental. We, we, don't, we do consider um, how tragic it is to waste thousands of dollars, but it's much tougher to recognize the damage caused by spending you know, five, 10, 15, $20 here and there very uh, frequently. Most of us, if we wrote it down, would probably be very surprised to learn how many thousands of dollars we actually have wasted when we add up those small expenses that have, have taken place uh, over time that we actually thought had little to no effect on us financially, but have actually had uh, a very big effect. And then third, most of these small purchases, they just don't look wrong. They don't look wrong. Like whereas some um, bigger purchases, if, if I rolled up in front of the church in a Rolls Royce or something, you know, um, obviously you can see my car and tell that I'm not a very big car guy. But if I happen to pull up in front of the church in a Rolls Royce, you could look and probably, um, you know, judge me. It's very easy to judge large purchases. It's very easy to accuse people of spend, and when people have spent, you know, thirty, forty $40,000 at a time. But small purchases, you can't really judge them. It's, it's very easy to think that there's nothing wrong with them. Eating out, going to the movies, you know, swinging by the coffee shop, those things, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't say that they're sinful. We don't consider them necessarily to be bad stewardships. You would have a hard time confronting someone about something like that. So it's very easy to justify those small purchases. It's surprising how comfortable people can feel. I've noticed this when they're struggling financially, yet they still can feel comfortable making a lot of these small purchases. You can talk to people who will tell you that things are tight financially, and while they're actually, you know, in the process of spent making lots of purchases that they don't really need to make. So it's kind of surprising that people can be so comfortable when, uh, you know, and justify the small purchases that would help them get out of the financial situation they spend themselves in or find themselves in. Now, Scripture, Scripture doesn't condemn these small purchases, but it does condemn purchases that we can't afford. So I'd say like this, Scripture doesn't condemn these small purchases, but it does condemn um, purchases we can't afford. We have the liberty to spend our money on these things that I said, but I would say that we don't have the liberty if we don't have the money for it. So I'm going to go through a couple examples here um, so we can see how this math sort of adds up. First, any questions or thoughts? Okay, so AMC Entertainment. It is America's most popular movie theater chain. I uh, first, I did a search for the you know, most popular um, theaters, found AMC, and then wanted to see what this cost, because uh, we, we're not really a big uh, theater family or anything, so I wasn't sure. I was surprised by how expensive it is. So listen to these numbers. Using their prices, the average movie costs $26 per person. So that's a ticket of $11, soda $6, and popcorn for $9. Uh, this is over $50 for a couple. And then as soon as you start adding some kids, which uh, many of us have quite a few of them, you end up with a spend over 100 bucks uh, very quickly. And I think it should be hard to justify that when you could rent a movie or you could have a subscription service that's a fraction of that price. Um, I mean, it's, to me, it's like, you know, $100 for two hours. And when you could, I, I, what, is, what is a subscription service? Like 10 bucks or something like that? You know, I think that would be a, a much, much better approach. Starbucks. What should Starbucks be called? Five bucks, right? Or seven bucks. bucks, Okay. So let's call this guy Joe. Do we, I don't, so nobody thinks I'm talking about them. I don't know if we have any Joes in the church, do we? Okay. So imagine a guy named Joe and on Joe's way to work each morning, he spends five bucks on coffee. 
And if he does this for five years, guess how much it will cost him? On the way to work, five days per week, he spends five bucks on coffee, and over five years, how much will he have spent? $12,000. Good. 7000 But that's a good guess. $7,000. And then imagine that Joe starts struggling financially. What's he going to say? Well, I have an income problem. I just don't make enough money. If I just made enough money, then I'd be in a better situation. And so, you know, imagine a caring friend tries to talk to Joe and, and, learn, and sees Joe walk into work every single day with his, with his um, you know, Starbucks coffee. And so he says to Joe, well, you know, Joe's, Joe's lamenting that he doesn't make more money. He needs a raise and things are so tight for him and his family financially. And a, and a caring friend recognizes that Joe comes in with his Starbucks every day. And so this friend tries to kind of you know, look for an opportunity, a little window uh, to discuss this with him and says, hey, well, you know, Joe, I noticed you come into, cof- into you know, work every day and you have this, this uh, coffee. And well, what's Joe going to say to that? He's going to say it's only five bucks, not really recognizing how much that adds up to. You know, if I only made more money, I wouldn't be in this predicament. The problem is, you know, our boss doesn't pay us enough or something like that. So he has an income, he thinks he has an income problem. Um, these are just examples with movies and coffee. There could be lots of other examples. There was one family we knew really well, and I think they were pretty busy, legitimately busy, and so they ate out a lot. I think the wife was really busy too, and when they, when they kind of lamented their financial situation, they didn't really connect the dots on how expensive it was for them to, to eat out, you know, I think four or five, six times per week. And I think the husband did this to care for his wife so that she wouldn't be so... Um, you know, burdened by having to prepare a meal each night with all the other, or maybe lunch as well with all the other things she had going on, but not really seeing how he was helping in one area, but it was hurting his family in another area. So you start adding in all these other expenses, and they, they do add up really quickly. So the second thing, so first we have um, small purchases that add up, and then the second, second issue, I'd say, or spending problem, I'd say, is worthless purchases. Spending problems often result from worthless purchases. Now, let me go ahead and define what I mean by worthless. When I say worthless, I don't mean that it's a purchase that doesn't have any value at all. When I say worthless, I mean a purchase that doesn't have any value for the purchaser in the near future. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it's an item that doesn't have any value, but I am saying that if you buy something and it has no value for you in the near future, a few weeks ahead, then that is at least a worthless purchase for you. And have, have you ever thought about how many things we've purchased, and then within a few weeks, it has no real benefit or advantage for us? That is something that I would say that at least for us is a worthless purchase, an item that has no value in the days, weeks, months, maybe even you know, years ahead. I'll illustrate this by sharing something that I witnessed when I was an elementary school teacher. And I think I, I might have shared this uh, story with you guys before. So when I taught elementary school, I think I focused an amount of um, attention on character as much as academics. Generally, mo- my, my posters in my classroom probably had more to do with morality and character than they did with academics. And so I enjoyed the opportunities to talk to my kids about... Um, my students about life's lessons for life, and one of the things I discussed at times with them was finances. You can do a lot mathematically, 
by showing them if they spend this much money over this much time or invest this much, what it turns into kind of can make kids a little more excited about math. And so we talk about that. And can anyone guess one, pretty much the, the premier moment or, or moments each year when kids waste money? What is the, huh? What do you say? Uh, they waste it on candy. That's, but what, what was something we would do during the school year? Where, book fair? <laughs> What's so funny about that? <laughs> do you see? Did you, you just said books are a waste of money? You're not my sister-in-law any longer. <laughs> okay, that's a fair point. I agree with you on that one. Okay, field trips. Field trips, man. Kids just love to throw money away on field trips. And the reason they throw money away on field trips is because they are given money for field trips. It just seems like you know, their parents, you can send a newsletter to parents and you can tell them, we're going to go have lunch. Your child, and I would tell them this, your child is only going to need money for lunch, which is like five bucks, maybe 10 bucks. And I don't know if all these parents just have all this money or throw away. They give their kids, they're coming on field trips with like 30, 40 bucks. If you give a, if you give a child 30 or 40 bucks, how much are they going to spend? Okay. Yeah. 30 or 40 bucks. Exactly. So, Go on these field trips, and I would spend a couple days before the field trip talking to my students, and I would tell them, when you go on this field trip, this is what is going to happen. Please listen to me so you do not make this mistake. Every field trip, or most of them, have a souvenir shop or something like that associated with them. If you go to a museum or you go to a skate park or you go almost anywhere, there's going to be some souvenir shop. And I would tell the kids, or you know, you go to the aquarium, that they're going to want to throw their money away on souvenirs. And I would say, don't waste your money on any of these items that you see in the shops. The, the items could be pretty cheap, and even if they're not pretty cheap, they're at least overpriced. And so don't buy any of them. And if you don't listen to me, then I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. You're going to go spend money in these souvenir shops. You're going to buy some stuff, and stuff is a loose word, word for junk, right? You're going to buy some stuff. And then you are going to leave it on the bus when we get home. When we get back to school, you will leave it on the bus. And why would they leave it on the bus? Because to them, it's a worthless purchase. It doesn't even have any value for them. We get home from the field trip. And as a teacher, you kind of walk down the aisle of the school bus to make sure none of the kids, all the kids get off the bus. And then you walk and see if anyone forgot their backpack under a seat or something like that. And so I would walk down the aisle, and this happened year after year, I would walk down the aisle after a field trip, and I would look in the seats, and I would see all of the stuff that they bought in these souvenir shops. And I would even tell my students the next year this story, and that this is what happened last year and the year before that, and guess what those students that year would do? (laughs) The exact same thing the students had done the years before. And so those are worthless purchases and that they have no value to the person who, to the purchaser a short time in the future after making the purchase. You know, I tell the kids, I don't want to make the same mistake. So pretty easy to listen to this story, you know, kind of look down on students, pass judgment on them, think that they're foolish for not uh, being wiser financially. But I think most of us, if we're honest, you know, we could raise our hands and share that there are things that we have purchased. And then within a short period of time, we have not done anything with it. it. It has served no value or purpose to us. And in that sense, it is also a worthless pur- purchase. 
Any thoughts or anything? Or anyone have an example they want to humbly share with everyone? Any thoughts? Okay, third, spending problems often result from self-entitlement. This might be the biggest one. Spending problems often result for, from self-entitlement. So we have spending problems result from um, small purchases that add up, from um, worthless purchases, which are those purchases that don't have any value in the future, and then third, from self-entitlement. So the Old Testament gives us a good example of some of these. Turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, very familiar account. Someone want to read verse 5? Nice and loud so everyone can hear, please. Genesis 3, verse 5. Can she do that? Do you think? What do you say? Okay. Yes. Okay, so there's a lot of different names for the devil in the script in scripture. I might have missed some. I mean, we've got devil, we've got Satan, we've got prince of darkness, prince of the power of the air, prince of this world. And if I had to come up with another title, it'd be like prince of entitlement. It just seems to me that the devil wants to make people feel entitled. Do you see how here in the original temptation, the devil tried to make Eve feel entitled? What did the devil basically say to Eve? Do you see how he was trying to make her feel entitled? What do you say to her, basically? Jake? It's almost like he's saying, God's holding you back from your full potential, so you really want your full potential, you go eat this fruit. Yeah. Yeah, you, you should have this. You shouldn't have to go without. You deserve to be happy. You know, God's always telling you what you shouldn't do and what you can't do. He, doesn't, he wants to make you miserable and suck the joy out of your life. You should go ahead and you should have this if you want it. So it just seems like he tries to make Eve entitled. It worked, and I believe it's the same temptation that we can face to be entitled. Turn to 2 Samuel 13. So David had married multiple wives. In our, in our Saturday morning group, we we're uh, talking about David and why he struggled as a parent. He generally recognizes a great king. The standard for the other kings, every king is generally compared with David, said to be good if they're like David and bad if they're not like David. And even though he's a standard for kings, he seemed to have been a very poor father. And we were talking about this in our Saturday morning group, and Jake uh, co-leads that with me. And he, he um, commented that it's probably because David had multiple households and he could not manage all these households. For uh, I think any father would raise his hand and say it's, it's difficult just to manage one household well. And so to think of managing you know, one wife and then a handful of children, I mean, think of multiple wives, multiple children, and multiple households. I don't know how anyone could have done that effectively. David suffered for that. Um, he'd given into his lust, taken more than one wife. <clears throat> so in the account we're looking at here, he has a son named Amnon, 
and Amnon is sinfully uh, lusting after his half-sister. And so they have the same father and David, different mother. But what I want you to notice is I want you to notice this very evil individual named Jonadab. He doesn't get a whole lot of attention in Scripture, but he, he looks to me, I read this account, and he looks like the devil. He looks to me like the devil uh, when he talks to Amnon, like the devil when the devil talked to Eve. So in 2 Samuel 13, look at what Jonadab says. Someone want to read this very loudly, verse 4. Someone read verse 4 very loudly, please. Tammy, very good. Okay, so Amnon, I I should have mentioned this earlier so the verse makes sense. He didn't take his thoughts captive. They began to control him to the point where he wasn't hungry and began to lose weight. And his uh, friend, I use that term friend loosely because he definitely wasn't a friend of him, Jonadab sees him and he actually says to him, he says, why are you thin? Why are you losing weight? You're the king's son. Basically what? You should have what you want. If you want this, you shouldn't be told no. You're the king's son. The king's son, you know, a prince gets to have all the things he desires, even sinful things, like he was, he was uh, coveting at this, at this moment. And so if you want her, you should take her. And Jonadab did make Amnon feel entitled, and then he did um, have his way in a real dark, uh, evil chap, um, situation, took his half-sister. And terrible consequences, he ends up getting murdered by, his, by Tamar's brother, Absalom. Um, but you just see how he tries to make tries to make um, him feel entitled here. Turn to the right to 1 Kings 21. Another example of entitlement. So Ahab was king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and I think he's a good example. I don't think he receives a lot of attention for this, but I do think he serves as a good example of a, of a certain principle or truth that generally getting more just makes you want more. Let me say it one more time. Getting more generally just makes you want more. Getting more doesn't solve the problem of coveting or lusting. Instead, it usually just kind of feeds that appetite um, and increases it. You know, the person who wants something, typically when they get it, if it's not a godly thing, it just makes them want even more of that. And so I mention that because I think Ahab's a good example. Of all people in the Old Testament, Ahab is someone who should have been able to look at a vineyard and not want it, considering everything else he had. I mean, all of his wealth, his palace. I think his, it was his father, Omri, who had set up um, Samaria as the capital, given, given Ahab this palace. He's wealthy, ex- ex- enjoys extreme, uh, extraordinary extravagance, especially for Old Testament standards. Yet he looks, sees a vineyard that doesn't belong to him, and he covets it. <clears throat> so he goes to this godly man named Naboth, who owns a vineyard, and he asks Naboth for the vineyard. And because Naboth, I mean, this is my belief about what's happening here, because Ahab made him a generous offer for the vineyard. But because Naboth knew that according to God's law, what was supposed to happen with land in the Old Testament? I think this, huh? Yeah, it passes down. It remains so that people didn't develop, you know, a monopoly and own, and own all the land. And so it had to remain in the family. So despite the um, generous offer Ahab made, 
which probably to Ahab wasn't a whole lot of money, but to Naboth would have been a lot of money. He declines selling his vineyard to Ahab. Ahab goes home and he pouts. It's a good example of pouting in the Old Testament. He turns his face to the wall and then his, his evil wife Jezebel comes to him. And someone want to read 1 Kings 21 verse 4. All right, so he stops eating, he's pouting, his wife sees him, Jezebel does. <clears throat> Go and read verse 7, Eldon, nice and loudly too. <clears throat> then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth and Jezebel. So what did, what did Jezebel basically do with Ahab? How did Jezebel basically make Ahab feel? Just made him feel really entitled. You know, you should have this. You shouldn't have to go without. You are the king of Israel. Kind of like John and Ab telling Amnon, you are the son of the king. You should have this. You shouldn't have to, you know, or Eve telling, uh, the devil telling Eve, you, if you want to be wise and have your eyes open, you should be able to have that. So it makes him feel entitled. And then sure enough, she goes and get, he allows his wife to go get the vineyard, murders uh, Naboth in a real tragic event. All these individuals, Eve, Amnon, and Ahab, they gave in to this temptation to feel entitled, and we can feel entitled too. What are some things that we can tell ourselves? It's easy to look at these individuals, but what are some things we can tell ourselves that cause us to feel entitled and will allow us to make purchases that we shouldn't make? What are some things we can say? Ra? This is the only thing that will make me happy. Very good. What else? Jake? I worked hard all week. I deserve this. Is that what you're going to say, Audrey? Yeah, that's pretty much the premier one. I deserve this. I have earned this. I have worked hard for this. And one of the other things that, uh, Katie? Okay. So what I, yeah, so one of the things that's interesting in these accounts that we looked at is it actually wasn't the individual saying this to themselves. It was someone else who was saying it to them to cause them to feel this way. And I think that is typically the more common scenario. The more common scenario is, is it might be us telling ourselves, I deserve this. But the more common scenario is someone else who could actually be very what? Well-meaning or concerned. They could love us. They could intend well, but they say, when they say you deserve this or you've earned this, they're actually probably undermining we're shortchanging the growth God wants to see in our lives, which would be a denial of self. Uh, so we do need to be careful of well-meaning friends when they uh, are not totally familiar with what God, what God wants for us. You reward yourself after all you've done, you know, and all you, you deserve this and, or you've earned this, and what you really earn is you earn a worse financial situation for yourself. Many people end up experiencing considerable regret after feeling like they earned this purchase and then what they really earned was more debt that plagues them for years to come. So for the friends, for John Adab, it was Amnon. Um, for Jezebel, it was Ahab. It could be a family member, those closest to us. You, you owe it to yourself to be happy. So we need to be on guard against that. Um, and then the fourth one. So we have spending problems resulting from small purchases that, that add up, um, worthless purchases, entitlement, and then the fourth one, impatience. Spending problems often result from impatience. So we don't like to wait. It's a problem. The Bible frequently discusses uh, patience. Patience has several benefits. 
which tells us that if we're not patient, then we're generally going to suffer as a result. Here are a few verses. Patience seems to allow our prayers to be answered. So sometimes we might think that um, our prayer hasn't been answered, but perhaps we just haven't been patient yet. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So it seems that God didn't hear our cry until we had, at least in the psalmist account, until the psalmist had been patient and waited for him to answer. So sometimes maybe we shouldn't throw up our hands too quickly and think that God hasn't answered. We just, he just wants us to wait longer to receive that answer. Patience can be a source of strength. It says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They should run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I struggle with being patient in my life. I can be impulsive and impatient, and I suspect that should I be, um, you know, patient, more, more patient in my life, I would probably have greater endurance or greater strength spiritually, you know, emotionally, mentally, because it seems that waiting on the Lord allows our strength to be renewed. Patience permits fruit to be produced in our lives. When that seed is thrown on the ground, it doesn't seem to produce fruit immediately. It takes time for that seed to grow. Luke 8, 15, the seed fell on the ground, the good ground, which is those having heard the word with a noble heart. They keep it, and it says, bear fruit with patience. Luke 8, 15 says they bear fruit with patience. So it takes time for fruit to be produced in our lives when seed has been thrown. Patience provides spiritual maturity. You know this from James 1. My brethren, count all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. Patience helps us learn and prevents us from saying things we shouldn't. Let every man be swift to hear, slow or patient to speak. Most of the times in my life when I have said things that I have regretted, uh, that I look back and realize I shouldn't have said, they came from speaking impulsively and not being patient. And there's probably a reason that in, in James 1.19, patience and anger or being quick to hear, slow to speak, and anger are related because we are generally angry when we say things that we shouldn't say, when we should be listening. Instead, at least that's definitely been the case in my life many times. And I'm mentioning all the benefits of patience so we can appreciate it because I tend to think that one area where patience can greatly benefit us is in the area of purchases. Patience can greatly benefit us in the area of spending money. Most of the purchases that we make that we regret, we probably would not have made if what? If what? Yeah, we just would have waited. If we will just wait, we will usually have greater clarity about whether we should make that purchase or not, and it will typically allow us to avoid the purchases that end up um, you know, causing us some amount of grief later. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty or not patient surely leads to what? This is interesting. It's not what you'd expect. Does anyone know the rest of the verse? Listen to this. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty or impatient surely leads to what? Chris? Yeah, poverty. Yep, that's what I've got. Very good, Chris. Yeah, poverty. So that's interesting. It actually says that impatient people will become poor. Impatient people will become poor. And my suspicion is because impatient people uh, make purchases impulsively, won't wait for them. Hard work leads to an abundance and patience leads to poverty. 
What are, the, what are the words we tell ourselves that lead to impatient purchases? What are the words we say? I want it now. I want it now. Those four words. Instant gratification, rushing in. Oh, Vicki, nice and lovely. Yeah. Oh, well said. Yeah, well said. There's, so, there's something interesting. Yeah, every, every good marketer knows that you want, what you want to tap into is um, people's emotion in that moment. You've got to cause them to think that this, this opportunity is not going to be available tomorrow. Say nothing about next week. You, are, you never see people, you know, good, good marketers tell people, go home and think about it. <laughs> I just, I know you're, you, have you ever been on a car, uh, car lot and the dealer said, listen, I know you're thinking about buying this car and I just want you to go home and pray and fast first and see if God wants you to buy this. Lane, nice and lovely. Me, or speak loudly so everyone can hear you. I want them to hear this. Oh, he told you that? Yeah, that was a, that was a good car dealer who was actually honest enough to tell you which might be a rare combination, but all right, Jameson, and then Jim, Jameson. Go ahead, yeah, fear of missing out, elaborate, so I've been talking a lot. Yeah. Jim, thank you, Jameson. Very good. This is humble. Give Jimmy your attention. <laughs> Go ahead, direct. This is going to be good. Look over this way. Pans. Oh, after you already bought the six hundred dollar ones? Yeah. Oh man. So you bought two sets of pans? No, we bought the one. Oh, return the first one. Oh, you did get out of it. Okay, good. All right. Good. Yeah, yeah. So something interesting, I don't know if you ever notice this on Facebook. If you ever see things sponsored or advertised on Facebook, there could be like hundreds or sometimes thousands of comments. If you look at the ad, the ad is going to say something about having to make this purchase quickly or in the near future, or this is going to run out, this deal runs out, it's only going to last 24 hours. But if you were to look at some of those comments that are on there, you will see that this ad has actually been running for how long? <laughs> it could have been running for months or years, which means they are lying to you because you can see that they've been running this ad all that time, but giving the impression that the deal is going to end. But the deal clearly doesn't end because if the deal ended, they would stop running the ad, but they still want the ad to give the impression that this deal is going to, to end in the very near future. So you feel like you have to do it right now. And so if we can be patient, it can generally save us um, lots of uh, heartache. 
So one, the one individual in Scripture that stands out to me as a great example is uh, Esau, if you want to turn to Genesis 25. <clears throat> if you want, my, just, just my opinion, Esau, is it already 10.15? Wow, time's going by quickly, okay. Esau is probably, to me, the premier um, example of impatience or the dangers of impatience. Or maybe I'll say like this. He's like the premier example of the I want it now attitude, especially because of what he was willing to give up and then the regret that he ended up experiencing later as a result of this attitude. So you know the account. We don't have to read all of it. Esau is in the field hunting and I don't know how, how often he was a success, uh, successful hunting, but at least this time he didn't seem to... Uh, he, pretty unsuccessful this day. He doesn't catch anything. And so he'd been out hunting. He's very hungry. He comes home, and his brother Jacob, who uh, was not a man uh, of the field, uh, was, seemed to be more of a farmer or something, was making this pot of stew. And so Jacob, um, very conniving, sees an opportunity. He's like a car dealer, you know. He sees an opportunity to, to close a deal here. He looks at his brother Esau. Esau is lamenting about how hungry he is. And so Jacob says, I'll give you some of my stew if you'll give me your birthright. Um, what, it, what is actually more outrageous than Jacob's offer? What is more outrageous than Jacob's offer? Esau's answer, yeah, that he, that he went along with it. It's absolutely shocking to me, no matter how much Esau wanted some stew at this moment, that he was willing to go along with it. But it shows captures very well the dangers of instant gratification that that because he wanted it so badly at that moment he's like fine go ahead and take my birthright and he he says something outrageously dramatic just a good good um, example of the fact that men can be very dramatic too esau says or melodramatic is probably the better word he says what gives my birthright to me because i'm gonna what i'm just gonna die so just give me some stew so there was no way he was gonna die but so he gives up his birthright Um, because he said, I need this, I have to have it now. Uh, So Esau didn't care what it cost him. Um, His impatience is shown in two ways. First, his his impatience is shown in two ways, and I want you to notice. The most obvious way his impatience is shown is he wouldn't wait for food, but does anyone see the other way his impatience is shown? He wouldn't wait to enjoy what? He was impatient in that he wanted the food right now, but he was also impatient and that he wouldn't wait to enjoy what? Huh? His birthright. His birthright would, because his birthright offered him nothing at that moment, he didn't want it. But it was going to offer him a lot later if he would have been patient enough to enjoy it. And so he did terribly um, regret it later. So verse 32, Genesis uh, 25, 32, if you happen to be there. I didn't even turn my Bible there. Sorry about that. He says, I'm about to die of what use is my, is my birthright to me. Um, turn to Genesis 27, two chapters to the right. Someone read verse 34, Genesis 27, verse... And when, when, this, when someone reads this verse, I want you to really picture what this looked like. You know, we kind of read through these verses really quickly, I think we can all get much more out of our Bible reading, especially I would tell any fathers when you're reading narratives with your, with your family. Really invite your family to visualize what you're reading. Really invite them to put themselves into the account and imagine what this looked like 
for these people. I mean, go through it kind of slowly, kind of savor it, you know, as a family, and invite your children to really picture what this looked like with the narratives, whether the Gospels, Acts, or the historical books in the Old Testament, because I think our, our children find it much more enjoyable. My kids are always asking to do plays and act out all these narratives. And so who wants to read Genesis 27, 34, and everyone else try to picture what this looked like? Uh, Dan, nice and loudly, please. So Esau learned he had no birthright, and he cries, a grown man sobbing like this. And it doesn't just say, it doesn't just say cried. I mean, all the adjectives piled on, it says exceedingly great, exceedingly bitter, and, just, and then just begs his father, bless me, father, bless me, even me also, my father, just trying to get anything from him. I mean, totally tragic scene to have witnessed. Um, if someone, if you want to turn... If you just want to listen, you don't have to. But if you want to turn to Hebrews 12 to see the New Testament commentary on this. We'll start at verse 16. I'll read it. Hebrews 12, verse 16. The author of Hebrews says, To see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, that, this can almost sound like an odd comparison to discuss um, immorality, the sexual immorality the author mentioned. But why, why does uh, that sort of immorality occur? Because people don't want to wait until what? They're married, right? Katie? Yeah. Oh, very good. So there's, I didn't think of that. So there's two reasons that this discussion of, of immorality is very fitting comparison. Because when you look at Esau, you don't see the sort of immorality that is mentioned in the verse here. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because when people engage in this sin, it's because of a failure to wait until marriage when, when this should be uh, consummated. And also, it's an example of lust. Esau was lusting after food, but when this immorality is engaged in, it's, a, it's an example of people lusting physically like that. Then in verse 17, the author says, you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. So it looks back on him sobbing. Now, I can't say for sure what it means that he found no place to repent. I don't think it's as, I could be wrong, I don't think it's as literal as it sounds. I do think there's always room to repent unless someone's a reprobate, like in Romans 1 where it says God has given these people over. Perhaps Esau was a reprobate. The Holy Spirit, which is, when someone's a reprobate, or I think it's Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, it talks about God giving people over. Um, we can never determine when God has given someone over. I'm sure there are lots of people that could look like reprobates or look like people God has given over only then to later see what in their lives? Great, yeah, repentance, salvation, probably some of the greatest servants of the Lord had at times in their lives looked like God was done with them and there was no hope for them. And then they end up being born again and serving the Lord 
faithfully. So I don't, we should never, I don't think we're, we can ever be in a position on this side of heaven. We should always assume nobody's a reprobate. Let me say it like that. Until someone dies, until people take their last breath, we should never assume someone's a reprobate. We should never look and say, well, they find themselves in Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. God has just given them over to all their sin. We should never think that, no matter how much someone looks, because God can, st- like, who, who, well, I'll just say it because I don't want to waste a bunch of time because we're short on time. But I mean, how much did Saul look like someone that would not serve Christ? I mean, he was, he was murdering Christians. He's, car- he's destroying families, breaking into homes, pulling people, you know, parents and children away from each other. And God just sovereignly reaches into his life and saves him on the road to Damascus. So someone can look like a reprobate and get saved. What I, so I don't, I don't know that Esau was a reprobate. I think what's in mind here is he went back and he wanted, to be allevi- he wanted to be alleviated of the problems he'd introduced into his life. He wanted to fix what he had done, and he wanted to go back and get the birthright after he had given it away, and there was no way to do it. And that's very fitting for us. There are many people who have made decisions, tried to undo them, and not been able to. Audrey, nice and loudly. Go ahead, nice and loudly. Yeah, continue. Yep. And Esau, yeah, very good. Esau was his father's favorite. We can be certain that Isaac did want to bless Esau, but he was unable to because he'd given away that blessing. Jameson, nice and loudly. That's good. So, good. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm understanding, you're saying Esau almost looks like the individual who lives with eternal regret after they've rejected Christ out of their life, and then it's too late to go back and repent and do anything about it. Yep. Yeah, which is interesting. It, it, hell is described as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth to kind of communicate that re- regret people might experience eternally. So, just an unfathomable grief. I can't, I can't even you know, imagine it. Um, and so anyway, we don't want to be an Esau. We see how he has this regret. There are, we can be forgiven and there can still be consequences. We can come to Christ, but still have to live with some of the things that we've done before Christ. We can be Christians, do things, and have to live with those consequences the rest of our lives. And Esau is a good, is a good example of that. So we don't want to be an Esau. Philippians 3.19, it says that there are certain people whose God is their stomach. Philippians 3.19, their God is their stomach, which just means that, that they or we, because I think it can apply to us too, we can be controlled by our appetites. We're controlled by those things that we want right at that moment. And so that allows us to be like Esau, but it could be like us, financially speaking, when we make purchases without waiting, when we have an I want it now type of attitude. Probably close with this. I know I've mentioned this before. Um, has anyone watched the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? I know I mentioned that in a sermon. If you haven't, I'd highly encourage you to go home and watch the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. 
watch videos of it, watch it with your children. It's where they took children at a, um, a young age. I was going to say at a young age. Obviously, children are at a young age or they wouldn't be children, right? So they took children and they put them in a room and put a marshmallow in front of them and then said, if you'll wait, I'll give you a second marshmallow later. And the entertaining part is watching these children drooling over this one marshmallow and watching some of the children give in and consume the marshmallow while others who waited, waited and see, say, what's the advantage of this, you know? Well, the advantage was they followed these children over years to come. And I'll just read one of the quotes from the study. It says, in follow-up studies on the children when they were older, the researchers found the children who waited for a second marshmallow, so they were, I don't remember how long, does anyone remember how long they had to wait? I can't, oh, 15 minutes. They had to wait 15 minutes, they'd receive a second marshmallow. And if they waited the 15 minutes, those, stu- those children ended up having, quote, better life outcomes as measured by SAT scores, educational attainment, body mass index, and other life measures. And so it just seems to me their impatience or impatience really had a great effect on the results of their lives. And so when the Bible talks a lot about patience, I think it does so very, uh, very justifiably or with God's wisdom behind it because he knows how much patience or impatience will affect our lives in many areas and I would say for this morning, including in, in the area of financial decisions. So we'll go ahead and pick up next week, um, probably. So any questions or thoughts before I close? Dan, nice and loudly. Thank you for, I appreciate um, someone older, I know you're in your late 40s, sharing with us what you have experienced because um, someone younger like me in my early 20s, not having the same advantage, (laughs) nobody really laughed. I guess you do think I'm in my early 20s, so uh, I do appreciate you sharing, Dan, what you've learned, your experience that waiting does have those great benefits too, so thank you. Anyone else? Okay, Father, thank you for this time this morning. I think there's um, some real spiritual lessons about impatience and patience. Help us to be patient. I know you, you teach us patience through trials and difficulties, which is a blessing. Help us to be thankful um, for them. It allows us to look at trials differently. At least that's a great encouragement to me and I hope to others. I thank you for um, the ways you've blessed us, but there's greater accountability for the finances we have. Help us to be good stewards. I don't know how many weeks... We might talk about this, Lord, but help us to be good stewards of this important stewardship. Help us to make good decisions financially and apply some of the principles we we see in your word regarding our purchases. Lord, be with Pastor Nathan as he preaches. Thank you for the worship service to follow. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.